Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm Spencer Christian, as you've just been told. And this evening, I'm not hosting or or, uh, anchoring a newscast. Uh, I'm here to be the moderator of this uh, fine panel discussion, an enlightening conversation whose participants are enophiles, or you could say um, aficionados, or you could say connoisseurs, or you could just call us grape geeks, which is what we all are. Uh, It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speakers, who will be addressing how climate change is altering the very nature of wine and spirit production here here in California and around the world. So let's get right down to the the contributors right now. Brian Friedman, on my left, is a wine and spirits travel and food writer and author of Crushed, How a Changing Climate is Altering the Way We Drink. Uh, We have Avery Heelan, who is winemaker at Lockmead uh, Lockmead Vineyards, one of the oldest family-owned grape-growing estates in Napa Valley. Jamie Kutch on the end, because your name is ahead of Joyce. <laughs> Jamie Kutch is owner at Kutch Wines, <laughs> a boutique producer of Pinot Noir from Sonoma Coast, and Joyce Sterling, who is CEO of Iron Horse Vineyards, one of Sonoma County's independent family-owned wineries and renowned for sparkling wines. Thank so you. these are our participants. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, this is going to be a free-flowing conversation, so don't feel like you have to wait to be called on to, to speak. But I'm going to start with Brian, since uh, your book is being featured tonight. Um, you talk about the impacts of, of climate change on, on uh, winemaking and, and on spirits. I want to know what motivated you to write this book, and what do you hope it will contribute to the conversations we have about, about climate change and about wine? It's a good question. So uh, I guess as, as a writer who focuses on on wine and spirits and, you know, a bit of travel and food, but mainly wine and spirits. Uh, One of the great perks of my job is that I get to spend usually about one week out of every month traveling around the country or around the world uh, with the express purpose of tasting delicious things and speaking with people uh, who are passionate about this world. Uh, I write usually one piece a week online for Food and Wine magazine, uh, for Forbes.com, Whiskey Advocate. And, you know, whenever I travel, inevitably you have these these long wine and spirit-soaked lunches and dinners. And over the course of the years, it seemed like the conversation turned more and more frequently to this climate change thing. Might be a thing. And, you know, it went from sort of a tangential part of the conversation to the crux of it. And I started realizing that, you know, the people who do what we all do for a living, uh, you know, it's it's something we focus on. But then in terms of books that had been written, there are a million and three books that have been written about how climate change is affecting our food system, right? And they're fascinating. They're deeply important. But I was not able to find a book that was written for consumers that told the stories of the people who are living climate change day in and day out, year in and year out. So uh, I thought this was something that was important to put out there. And I, you know, at the end of the day, these are human stories, right? I mean, all of us, we can look at, at sugar accumulation charts of how grapes are ripening throughout the season and all these other things. But, you know, that's, that's not what wine lovers necessarily 
care about, right? right? And it's these stories are being felt viscerally and more and more frequently. So I wanted to tell those stories. Well, now, as a wine consumer, I appreciate that. But you also write extensively in the book, which covers winemaking around the world, from California to Bordeaux and Burgundy to Israel. You talk about the huge challenges to winemakers, these people, uh, and how they have to adapt to these uh, sometimes... uh, devastating effects of climate change. So I'm wondering, uh, what's changing in the way that you approach winemaking, any of you, uh, because of what's happening with climate change? Well, I'm happy to start. We, we have a very unusual situation. Where we're located is an area called Green Valley, which lies within the Russian River Valley. And it's the coolest, foggiest part of the Russian River. And, and I mean cool in every sense of the word. And <laughs> but strangely enough, there are those who say that climate change for us may end up making us cooler and foggier because of weather inversion. Right. And it has to do with, first of all, the winds becoming stronger and that we have sensed. Um, and so it will be dependent upon the temperature, the water temperature of the ocean. Um, but it's conceivable that we will become cooler and foggier. So it may be that we'll be fine, or it may be that we'll be burgundy. And <laughs> Which is not so bad. Win is a win. <laughs> Which is not so, so bad. I don't really know what to say. But, <laughs> but you know, when we talk about climate change and the warming of the, of the globe, we I'm always think... I'm saying you places, don't know. Yeah, don't know. <laughs> and, of course, we don't know. Yeah. Um, we do see certain things. When uh, when we first, my family first came to Iron Horse, all of the oak trees were just dripping in Spanish moss. Mm. And there is no Spanish moss. A little bit is coming back now, so I don't know what that means. But we've been, this is our 47th vintage. So I've seen change, yeah. obviously, and uh, in our little baby quail population and monarch populations and we're bringing back fish. I mean, so we are living it. And, um, and I'm very proud that the, uh, the wine uh, makers and vintners are at, on the forefront of climate change. I'm, I'm curious uh, what the experiences are for Jamie and, and Avery, because we think so much about the planet getting warmer, which it is. Uh, but it's interesting that for Joy, it's getting, maybe getting cooler where you are. What what challenges are you facing? For us, we almost have the polar opposite conditions yeah. that you have. So we're up in Calistoga. It's the most northern part of the Napa Valley. And we've experienced very little fog to no fog. Yeah. So by 9 a.m. every morning, it's very warm. But the benefit for us is that we have a huge diurnal shift. So at the evenings, a cool wind will come over the mountains in Calistoga and kind of blow that hot air out of the, the vineyards. And it will drop quite cool at night, which allows us to have very kind of even ripening throughout the summer. But our biggest struggle is that we don't get any fog and constantly the days are warming higher and higher than we've ever seen before. And the frequency is a lot more, too. Yeah. So does that, does that affect the, the, uh, the grape growing season when you harvest or how much natural sugar and alcohol yes. the, the grapes contain? So our biggest challenge is trying to kind of moderate the sugar or the potential alcohol with um, getting phenolic ripeness and having that hang time on the vine. So our seasons have become uh, shorter and shorter. So we're quite a late uh, site to start bud break. We are usually kind of the last in the valley because it is such cool evenings and the vines take a little bit longer to wake up. But then they catch up really fast because the summer is so much warmer. And, of course, there's also the wildfire threat. 
yes. which you have certainly faced, Jim. Yeah, that's right. That was written about in the book for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for myself, we, we bought a property in Sebastopol, um, which is in Sonoma, and it's a cool region of Sono Sonoma as well. Um, there was determinations then how it was going to be planted. So we planted 30 degrees off north, which is different than even just, you know, a short five years ago or a decade ago, where you would pull plant more often north-south or magnetic north-south. By the angle of the, the, the rows, you capture some more shading. Um, the sun at the high point of the day um, allows you to have more shade on the fruit zone so the fruit doesn't just get quite as warm yeah. um, and in turn allows you to counterbalance some of that. Now, again, it's just that's very different. So there's two other vineyards, one vineyard that's touching me and one that is across the street and they're both planted um, much more north-south. So, and they're planted um, long before us. So it's intriguing to see that. The other is cover crop. You know, cover crop, we're bringing in carbon from the atmosphere. But more importantly, I've seen pictures, I've not done this myself, but I've seen pictures of rows that have cover crop down the row, grasses that are growing peas and um, uh, you know, what have you, uh, my mind is fava beans, yeah. fava beans, like, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, right. Yeah. Um, and then there's a row next to it that's been killed. That's just raw earth. And, um, the temperature gradient can be, I I've seen, and you guys might know better than me, but I've seen it with a heat thing that measures the meat on the barbecue and forgive me for my brain isn't that well. No, we've but done it. Could it. Be, it could <laughs> yeah. be a 10 to 20 degree difference in yeah. temperature from the cover crop. Right. And the cover crop also keeps moisture in. Uh, it acts as like a, um, almost like mulch. Right. Um, so that's compelling and interesting. Those are two things that I tried to think of through the day. I'll throw out one more and then I'll give it back to you, Spencer. Oh, no, uh, don't. Yeah. yeah it's free right flowing. <laughs> uh, the way we make our wines, we use stem inclusion. So we put the stems um, yeah. in the tank with the berries. And for some reason, again, I'm not really great at science, but their alcohol is lower. We've picked grapes and made one fermentation where it's 100% de-stem. So it's just berries in the tank. And the wine is 14% alcohol. Then we've made it with 100% stem inclusion, the stems on with the berries. And I think the kinetics of the fermentation are cooler. It ferments cooler. And the alcohol is a full degree lower at 13%. So just three things that are coming out to mind that are fun to play around with while you're trying to figure out where this is. Well, one of the many things I want to hear all of you address, including Brian, from a uh, consumer's perspective is um, with these weather extremes becoming more severe, uh, of longer duration, and more more frequent, uh, is that going to completely alter uh, the way we enjoy the, the wines that we enjoy? I mean, uh, is it going to have an effect on the quality of the grapes because the growing seasons are so hot? Are you going to have to start? Uh, winemakers going to have to start growing different varietals from the ones we're used to here in Northern California, for example. Uh, the, the, the Bordeaux grapes tend to grow well in Napa. The, the Burgundian grapes tend to grow better in Sonoma. Are we going to be planting new grape varietals to adjust to the changing climate? Are you going to be moving farther north to escape the, the heat? What's, what changes will you have to make in winemaking to adapt to this ever-changing climate? So what was interesting when I was speaking with producers and growers around the world is you can move you know, further north in the northern hemisphere, further south in the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. You can also uh, chase altitude. 
right? I mean, when I was growing up, I grew up in a house where we drank, you know, Napa Cab and Left Bank Bordeaux. And, you know, the best vineyards. A family with good taste. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't that long ago. I'm 21. I just looked at uh, it. Was, See what climate change did to him? <laughs> that, that's me. Uh, Don't blame climate change. It was also the wine thing. Uh, you know, but when I was growing up, it was, you know, it was, it was those vineyards that were, you know, more on that valley floor. It was, it was those lower lying ones. And now I would say the majority of pitches that I get uh, you know, about new wines, new releases are hillside vineyards, mountain vineyards. So there is this, you know, this looking for a greater diurnal shift. Um, but even just in the last 15, 20 years, uh, you know, I, I went to, to Argentina for the first time to taste in 2010. And I flew into this airport in the northern third of Patagonia called Neocane. It looks, it's the part of Patagonia that looks more like Montana as opposed to like glaciers and stuff. That's yeah. further south. And that was like the ends of the earth yeah. for, for southern hemisphere wines. That was 2010. It's now 2013. And they're growing. There are some experimental vineyards there. And not just for white wines, but for red wines too yeah. that are like 1,000 or 1,500 kilometers further south from there. Because this is what they're having to do. So changing the locations, I'll let you guys speak to this, but the grape varieties, I mean, in Champagne and Bordeaux, for certain appellations within them, yeah. right? And these are tradition-bound places. You're allowed now to grow non-traditional grapes, yeah. right? I mean, you might start getting Champagne that's not just made with Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. You might start seeing some of the good percentage of, you know, Petit Meslier, <laughs> <laughs> Get ready for it, people. The, the grapes of wrath. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think necessity will be the mother of invention here, number one. And I think number two, uh, you just don't know. Yeah. And that's one of the beauties of wine. And, you know, we grow wine in every state in this country. Yeah. It's ama- all 50 states. And um, But even within a little area... You can say, okay, that vineyard immediately adjacent can be different. And, well, from my house to my mother's house on the same property, there's a full temperature degree difference, and her camellias are all finished when mine are just starting to bloom. So, it, and speaking of hillside, one of the things that we've learned with the unbelievable flooding we've had is the value of hillside vineyards is that the water sheds. And it goes into our floodplain. Now, the only unfortunate thing is that the floodplain happens to be our entrance. So it, it blocks it <laughs> blocks you from you going in or going out. So you get to choose if you want to be flooded in or flooded out. And both have their advantages. Flooded in, plenty of wine. Flooded out, electricity. Yeah. So you just have to, <laughs> <laughs> you have to pick your, your priorities. I think for Larkmead, uh, we might be in a unique situation with um, kind of planting other varieties. We have farmed this land for 128 years, and it's been family-owned since the start. And the family that owns us now has been farming this land for over 75 years. And so we very much feel that we have a magnificent piece of land and soils between the two mountain ranges. And so we kind of want to learn how to adapt our farming for this property. It's 110 acres. And recently we planted three acres of alternate varieties that we think that might kind of blend well with Cabernet in the future. 
um, things like Alianico that hold acid really well because when it gets very hot, that's one of the first things that grapes kind of drop out mm -hmm. is tartaric acid and uh, things like Petit Syrah or Shiraz that might contribute some color or Trigue National because that also can get bleached out from the sun in um, the grape skins. And then we even planted a white Chenin Blanc to kind of see the potential for kind of experimental white wines. And so our, our goal is to always stay a Cabernet house. We're not trying to be a Trigue National right. house <laughs> in Calistoga. Um, but you might see in the future that our blend will have 1% Trigue National. And so our hope is to kind of preserve that style for our consumers that know and love our house style. Um, but we also know we can farm Cabernet a little differently. Just like you were saying, we've experimented with cover crops, shade cloth, which kind of protects the fruit from the intense sun rays. Um, but we also kind of changed our trellising in the last year to do a modified, if you guys are all familiar with uh, vineyards, kind of the shoots and the greens are just straight up and it's called vertical shoot positioning. But we found the old way we used to farm, kind of California sprawl back in the 70s, provided a little bit more natural shade and kind of dispersed light for the fruit to ripen. Um, and so we've been trying to experiment a little bit with that too. Well, traditionally, Cabernet, or at least in, in Bordeaux, has always had some blending partners, you know, Merlot and Cab Franc exactly. and Bordeaux. Uh, but, but Jamie, you specialize in Pinot Noir, and Pinot Noir doesn't have a bunch of blending partners, does That's it? right. That's right. Uh, we do have clonal material. There'll be different clones, just like orchids are different colors, or, you know, they're different subsets of Pinot from different places. There are different vineyards, and yeah. um, we can tinker and play with those. Um, the, the plant material that we're planting is... Um, most of it's from Burgundy, so I don't, you know, they, we, most of the material here in the United States for Pinot Noir and in the Sonoma Coast is a Dijon clone, and those tend to get high in the sugars quite rapidly. Um, the plant material that we're planting is more clonal material from Burgundy rather than the Dijon clones. Probably a little bit too technical to discuss, but yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. This, this is a wine-loving audience. They, yeah, they, right on. They know what we're talking about. Right, awesome. <laughs> Great, great. You'll taste it and you could judge. <laughs> but it was so uh, clearly there have to be adaptations made to but your approach to farming. for a farmer. Yeah. Right, that's right. Uh, Nothing's in control. Because you're in agriculture, agriculture <laughs> right? It's yeah. agriculture. And, yeah. and so some of the, some of the, tech, the techniques, which are now so much in vogue for agriculture, regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. are really pretty much standard operating procedure for vineyards, like cover crop. Yeah. I mean, we've known about that for a long time. And, um, and one, of the, one of the great things is that vineyards um, are actually very good carbon sinks. Yeah. So, it's, yay us. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> one of the other things that I, that I think is important to, to talk about with all of us, right, is that, you know, when I first got into this business, uh, 2005, I guess, I started doing this full time, it was, I remember having these conversations with friends, mm -hmm. you know, like we would see a, a wine label that said sustainably grown or oh. organic, and we were kind of like, that's adorable, you know, like that, what's, <laughs> you know, it's, it was like, it was this label and what's the, how, how much we knew, right? <laughs> yeah, right. how quaint, yeah. <laughs> and, but, but, you know, it really does seem like uh, the producers that I have spoken with for this book, that the more complete you can make your ecosystem, mm -hmm. right, the more you can get your vines not 
needing a ton of irrigation. You, you get deeper roots. Things are better for the vines, for the natural environment, and for the wine itself. I'll never forget, there was, I, was in, I was in Israel uh, for one of my chapters. My question there is, you've been growing grapes, making wine here for like thousands of years. Yeah, right. What do you do now? You're in the desert and it's getting hotter. Um, but we were at this one producer, Tabor, and I remember the, the viticulturalist, a woman named Michal Ackerman, she's brilliant. And she, she was very excited. She held up her cell phone and she showed us a picture of an owl. It was a black and white owl from one of their security cameras, like their night vision security. So I guess it'd be like white and green. It's night vision. Uh, and, and the owl was sort of staring Hannibal Lecter style like, oh, at, the, at the lens. And it had like blood dripping down its, its feathers. And I was like, why are you showing us this? She said, because when the owl came back, right, she was able to take what had been a vineyard that had been farmed like so many vineyards had been farmed in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s uh, with, you know, there were some, you know, pesticides, herbicides, this sort of thing. And she went through this years-long process of bringing back that natural environment. And the fact that this yeah. owl was here meant that it had prey mm-hmm. and that had prey and so on and so forth. And you look down at the soil and it was just, there were all these, these beneficial insects and the wines were fabulous. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you all about, you know, your sustainability efforts and, and what you've seen, because at this producer in Israel, it was this visceral sense of understanding that it's not just a quaint thing when it says sustainable or organic, but many times it's, it's better yeah. in this dramatically changing world. Sure. I, you know, it's a good point. I think we were talking about uh, off, uh, defense before. Defensively, what are we going to do to countersuit, you know, climate change? But instead, we should be discussing offensive positions of what we can do to prevent it from getting worse and trying to reverse it. And, you know, cover crop is monumental, again, bringing in carbon, but also very important is um, those heavy bottles. So, you know, you have bottles that can weigh, the glass can, once it's filled, it can weigh four pounds, four and a half pounds. Um, Using a lighter, thinner glass is, is, is helping enormously. Only a month ago, I had done another event and it was a regenerative fashion event where they People were purchasing clothing from Salvation Armies and re, re, you know redoing them, and also taking products of you know scraps of whatever it is, carpet, and making designs. And the women are running, walking the runway, and people were coming up to the counter. And I had supplied the Pinot Noir local, and they had gotten gotten donated the event planners um, a Chablis from um, from France, and people were coming up. And I said, "You have the California Pinot local." Or you have the Chablis that's been, you know, um, flown over here on a on a cargo pushed over on a cargo ship, and massive emissions were emitted. And you know, some people just didn't care. Yeah, they were there for the event, and they said, "I'll have the Chablis." And I said it every time, over and over. And you know, whatever the shtick was, it got even tighter as the evening went. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I had some deadpans. But it is important for us to think about that. And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you both can expand on that even further with more ideas of thoughts. Of uh, things that we can do. One of the things that I love is what we haven't done and how beneficial what you don't do can be. Mm. So, for example, leaving all of the riparian corridors natural, mm. not planting every viable inch leaving a lot of natural intersecting, basically, wetlands. And also, the uh, all the oaks on the property. Just 
they win. And uh, as you drive um, up to the winery on the left, you'll, you'll see these giant oaks and you'll see the vineyard on that side receding because yeah. the oaks are winning. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, through the root system and we just are going to share because what the oaks do, they are really great at absorbing uh, carbon. So, you know, all, there's so many things yeah. And and you try to do everything that you, you just do what you can. I have a little trouble. I don't know how everybody else feels, but some of the labels bother me. In what way? Yeah. Well, so for example, you can be uh, sustainable. You can be uh, organic and not sustainable. Oh, right. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. You can be regenerative and not organic. Right. Yeah. And and more importantly, you know what? You were crimping grass. Yes. So, I mean, as opposed to tilling, this is, mm-hmm. this is part of what regenerative is now, to, to leave as much of the soil untouched as possible. But that also varies from place to place. We're subject to frost as late as June 1st. Yeah. So we have got to keep, um, we need cover. the cover crop, but we got to keep it low yeah. or we're going to freeze our own grapes. Um, yeah. So you can't, so my trouble is with the labels. Yeah. Everybody, there are so many ways to, to get to the right point. You give me a hopeful feeling as you talk about what we can do to adjust, because you have to. Uh, so smart, innovative agronomists and viticulturists will find ways to adapt. But what about the other threat from climate change, which is the wildfires, which could pose a threat to your livelihood? Uh, so on the, on the not-so-optimistic side, what do we do to, I don't know, uh, keep the grapes safe from the threat of wildfires. I think like with all things with climate change, we are learning more and adapting. And so we're learning how to farm and preserve freshness, but farm in a way that we can get Cabernet grapes ripe in late August to early September. Our harvest dates have rarely uh, passed September 14th for the last like four years up at Larkmead, which is usually when harvest used to start about 10 years ago. That's right. And so we're bringing in almost 200 tons before then. um, And we're able to kind of farm in a way that gets phenolic ripeness, gets the right alcohol potentials and gets the right flavors in the fruit. Um, without having to sacrifice quality and being open to those threats of wildfires. And so we know that it's a very real possibility. It's leering around every year for the past five years, and we've gotten lucky in some. Um, But I think learning how to farm in a way that you can kind of push things forward and kind of get your fruit in before the wildfires, because they usually come in late September, early October. But there's obviously no controls. Yeah. (laughs) Not always. I think there's not a lot you can do, I think, except, you know, making sure that you've hardened the property to your best ability and you keep everything clean and you keep trees away from buildings and you're you're not letting brush accumulate. I mean, you know, just like you would for your home. So I think that there's that. I think the biggest uh, question is, I don't know how you would ever protect yourself from smoke taint. If it's in the air, it's in the air. Yeah. And uh, But now there's so much research being done on, on how to cope with that if it happens. Um, but that, that's a whole new uh, learning. I mean, now grape contracts are being written with smoke tape provisions. And that just never existed before. So there's a, there are new things that we're coping with. And with the heat and the smoke from a... Uh, um, 
uh, a business, an extended family business, um, you have to be, you, you know, we don't go out and work under certain conditions. If the temperatures are this way or the air quality is that way, that's it. Everybody's out of the vineyard. It doesn't, grapes, to, grapes are after people. I'm just, from all the research that you did, Jamie, and all the traveling globally for your book, I'm just wondering if there are certain things you learned that stood out uh, as, I don't know, stunning, concerning. Um, I, I know that you end on, a, on an optimistic note, as, we, as you all do, uh, but were there certain concerns that just kind of jumped out as you, at you as you talked to these winemakers in these various regions? Because you went to South Africa, Israel... Uh, down to uh, Patagonia, <laughs> uh, here in Northern California, Bordeaux, Burgundy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I mean, everybody is dealing with something mm-hmm. as it pertains to climate change, right? Yeah. Um, what really surprised me, one of the more sort of viscerally impactful experiences that I had was in all places, uh, Texas Hill Country. Uh, I was at a producer there in September, October 2021. And I mean, again, this is like an hour-ish outside of Austin, so it's not exactly the Arctic Circle. <laughs> and we're at this uh, at this winery. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Spicewood, Spicewood Vineyards, make delicious wine. Uh, they specialize in in uh, traditional Spanish grape varieties, Garnacha, Tempranillo. Uh, and you know, I'm looking out at their estate vineyard, and it was just like empty. There was nothing on those vines. And I said to the owner, Ron Yates, I said, it was great. You got all your fruit in. How was harvest? He said, what are you talking about? There was no fruit this year. What do you mean there was no fruit? Keep in mind, this is in the autumn. And he said, do you remember that like nine-day quasi-biblical ice storm that ran across Texas over like around Valentine's Day? Because of that, because of the damage and the shock that those vines underwent, they just, by the time they actually started, you know, budding, it w- they were like a month too late. Yeah. And then they just sort of withered and died. There was nothing. So he had to source his fruit from elsewhere. And I thought, wow, if, if like Texas Hill Country, right, if this, this amazing winemaker's vineyard got zero fruit off of it yeah. there because of frost and extreme cold, that's a problem, right? That's weird, and that's what's going on. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's in agriculture, in wine, it's always about, you know, everyone I spoke to always said, you know, you use the past to guide the present and the future, and that's just not happening necessarily in, in as, as reliable a way as people would like. Well, Noah doesn't even know. Yeah. No. yeah. So, you know, so... You but have- I think we can pull from, like, Australia for wildfires and, like, Obviously, Burgundy's been dealing with frost for so long. Like, we've learned so much that I think you can adapt and kind of implement new practices. Oh, definitely. I'm just saying there's no, the predictive. Yeah, you can't predict. That would be Uh, great. (laughs) uh, You know, I really just think the the crystal ball is just gone. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized the effect of climate change in my brain. I think I called you Jamie instead of Brian when I asked you that <laughs> I question. drank for a little bit. I forget. Did I? I did. I, I did. That's okay. So since this, this, this discussion is being recorded, I just want to acknowledge for everyone watching, I know this is Brian and that's Jamie. Spencer, as long as I get to drink Jamie's wine, you can me anything you want. <laughs> exactly. <It's fine>. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we will take some audience questions. At some point, someone's going to bring some audience questions up here to me, but but we'll keep talking because we I have questions galore to ask. Uh, 
Um, but I like that. I really, as someone who forecasts weather and who studies climate change daily, because uh, not only is it my job, but I'm passionately interested in it. Um, I, you've all given me a little bit of a hopeful feeling about how we will deal with this and adjust to it, and I'll, and I'll still be enjoying great wines. Uh, they won't be tasting like uh, they were toasted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that generally, uh, generally um, farmers are generally optimistic yeah. and very adaptive, mm -hmm. and, I, and because we have to. And, um, and so I think right. that that is, uh, that's part of what makes viticulture so important in climate change is that we really are out there, you know, showing what can be done. Technology is also going to be our friend. Yes. Uh, anybody who um, knows me knows that I'm just passionate about broadband. And when we start to get connectivity in our vineyards, the ability to measure our water use, for example, will be so significant. Uh, major advances will be able to be made with that. Well, here's a question. Are any of you personally connected with vintners in other countries with whom you discuss problems of climate change with wines? I worked in Western Australia where when I first got there in 2016 and I drove down from Perth, um, it's about a three-hour drive, and the entire bushland, every part of the road had been burned. Mm. And I arrived right in the beginning of their summer, which is January. And so um, they've been dealing with fires for a really long time. Their best advice is stop living out in such rural areas. Like, <laughs> what are you guys thinking? <laughs> but of course, with farming, we can't always move uh, vines to more coastal, cooler climate areas. Yeah. And so um, I think they've learned a lot about how smoke taint kind of impacts uh, flavors. It, it's really dependent on timing of both the fire and where your grapes are and phenolic ripeness. Yeah. Um, so we actually brought a 2020, our Cabernet. It's the only wine we produced in 2020. Um, but we thought it'd be fun to pour. And when we're talking about climate change, of course, it was an incredibly challenging year. But for us, it was marked by the heat. Yeah. Uh, we had about 87 days that were over 95 in 2020. It's like yeah. the hottest year on record. But the biggest challenge for us was that the nights were then warmer. It was actually humid up in Calistoga, which is something we never experienced. Right. And so the benefit of that is that our harvest got pushed earlier, um, earlier than ever. But um, we started kind of planning in the beginning to have some kind of leaner components that we pick early and then some riper components because we started planning like we're going to have to make one wine. It's going to have to be the best of the best. We're not going to be able to make all six wines that kind of highlight the differences of our property because we want to put out something that's representative of our house style. Um, but we can't, with how hot it is, we can't make that. Yeah. And so we're going to have to pick differently and adapt. And so I invite you all to come try it. Um, I think it will be a very interesting kind of segue into kind of the realities of climate change, but then into your glass. Well, your comment, your reference to smoke taint was an interesting segue to the next question, oh. actually, which is <laughs> what kind of impact have Northern California wildfires had on your products? Um, See, they've given you I, that's, uh, that's, allergies, that's, allergies. That's, 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 that's the answer right there. <laughs> we have been very lucky. Again, you know, that fog has been our just unbelievable for us. And it uh, has held the um, pr particulate matter aloft. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in the same way that the fires have been 10 miles that way, 10 miles that way, knock on wood, 
we we also have we so we have not that that our little weather system has protected us from right. that. So that's us. You know, um, I'm I'm sort of most most of our fruit we per, we purchase. So um, my brand, we've I've been making wine for eighteen nineteen years, and um, I'm a one man band. I don't have any employees and do it all myself. So. You know, when there's a decision, a, a, a decision or a, um, a point that has to be made, you know, I usually am an ex-trader from Merrill, so I make the decision almost instantaneously. Um, I'm fortunate in that regard with my brain how it works. But in any event, um, when I start to see something in a vineyard or our temperatures or climate or I'm start, starting to struggle with fruit that's just not working or um, I'll pull the ripcord from that and then focus on a new area and try to and source fruit. Um, our estate vineyard, I don't have that capability, which we just planted or purchased two years ago and last year we planted. So fingers crossed that we don't have much shifts there. But there's pros and cons. I think the both of you are working with estate. You know, I'm, I'm a d little bit of a different shift in the regards to mm -hmm. there's about six vineyards that I just purchased fruit from beyond our one estate, which we won't have fruit for, for three or four years. So from, from, from a climate standpoint, um, there's vineyards that are real close to the Pacific ocean that sit really high at almost a thousand or 1200 feet. And they've been really, they're still in vogue today. Uh, they were really in vogue a decade ago, if not more. And it was known as a real cool area. Well, it's getting to be rather warm out there because you're so high now you're two two and a half miles from the pacific ocean um but you're above fog so fog has a big influence in sonoma so when the sun comes up at 6 30 in the morning it immediately is getting photosynthesis and if you're on a south face with north south row orientation you can get warm really rapidly um so for me you know without i've never discussed this with others it's it's hard because of i have peers that this is their estate is out there, but I'm finding that that area or that region is almost getting, you know, too warm for myself. So I start to shift, um, one brand, I'll bring up the brand because they're good people and they're doing cool things. But Kistler used to own a lot of land, um, and they sold the brand and they have a new, new property down in the bodega area. Um, and that area is really cool and cold. So it's intriguing that Steve Kistler had, you know, maybe the biggest and best Chardonnay in all of California. It was known everywhere. It was on every wine list and, and sold that business and shifted. Uh, it would be intriguing to have him or his, more importantly, his daughter on this panel to discuss, to say, like, what was your dad's thinking or reasoning behind that too? When so, did they buy that? I don't know. Over it, I thought it would be a decade ago would be a But guess. only a decade ago. Maybe, maybe more. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that. But just another, you know, your brain's always thinking and um, my shift is to try to find more fruit um, farther inland, but where there's fog, you know, right. fog is right. a big impetus or piece of the equation for Pinot Noir in Sonoma. So there you go. Here's a question I wish I had thought of, and that is, are you incorporating uh, alternative energy sources like wind or solar in your operations? Yeah, we've had solar for, I think, the last 15 years across the entire building, and it gets a lot of energy with the intense sun rays that come across the building. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one source. I think we have not gotten to the point where we're banking that power. We're just giving it back to the grid, and I think that might be a part of the future, but also expanding the solar across the barns and different parts of the property. 
it's very easy to use solar. It might not be so easy for you up uh, in the fog layer. It's, um, well, and also because we have so many trees. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, when you're, it's what we were talking about before, if you're weighing things, we're not going to cut down the trees to put up solar panels. Yeah. Just, right. You know, so it just is not going to work. But the building, uh, the warehouse where we are aging all of our sparkling wines, mm-hmm. that all is um, temperature controlled with solar power. So, so where, where we have it. Now, one of the big things is that um, uh, in the Delta, they're putting solar panels on, on the waterways. And so that's a thought for us, too, would be to put it on our reservoir. Mm-hmm. I think, Joy, you made a reference earlier to uh, carbon capture. Uh, this question is, uh, how do grapevines compare with redwood trees for carbon sequestration? They're smaller. <laughs> They're smaller. <laughs> that's all I know. Uh, that's, <laughs> that is the answer. Sometimes the simple answer is... Well, you said it before, but vineyards are very regenerative by nature. <laughs> But I don't just know, know yeah. compared to a redwood. What? <laughs> I want data. <laughs> you know, and I'm trying to compute, well, how many vines equal one redwood? Yeah. <laughs> oh, here's a, this is a question specifically for Avery, okay? Uh, now we're going to get really into the weeds here. Uh, effect of mal- oh, of, what is the effect of malolactic fermentation, um, the effect on malolactic fermentation uh, from climate change? Oh. I don't feel like there has been one. To be honest. Do you want to define malolactic fermentation oh, first? <laughs> <laughs> so malolactic fermentation is like a secondary fermentation. Yeah. So the primary fermentation is when yeast converts sugar to alcohol. Yeah. And then red wines and some white wines, but none of our white wines, um, go through a secondary fermentation, which is a bacterial fermentation. And it's when they convert malic acid to lactic acid. And so malic acid is very tart and fresh, and lactic acid is a little softer. And for a wine, especially a red wine, to be stable, they have to go through mallow. Although there's some Cabernets, very old school style, that don't. A little wild in my opinion. But um, I will say so. a big effect from climate change is more our yeast. And so... For us, we switched to completely organic about 10 years ago for all 110 acres. Um, And that includes like landscaping for the entire property as well. And you were talking about some measurable things that people want to know, like what has impacted. And people always want to know, well, what has organic farming or what has these have these alternate practices benefited for your grapes? And the easiest thing for me to measure is our yeast populations and kind of the natural flora and fauna that now exists in the vineyard that didn't before. And we have very healthy yeast cultures now. We actually have some strains that are unique to our property that are such strong and beneficial fermenters that they outpower commercial yeast, which not to get nerdy about (laughs) yeast, it's very unheard of for that to happen. And so for malolactic fermentation, that happens spontaneously for us, but that can happen spontaneously or not, depending on the year. So it hasn't changed very much. But the yeast health have, have definitely been like a measurable change. I was going to say offering that definition was the yeast you could do, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. We needed a dad joke. I'm <laughs> <laughs> full of dad jokes. That's for sure. Uh, I'm just curious. Somebody may have to cue me when it's time to wrap up. Not that I'm eager to, to end this, but I don't want to go too long. Um, I'm personally curious about what wines you 
each of you likes to drink other than the wine you make. Uh, so when you're not drinking your own wine, what do, what do you enjoy drinking? Water, yeah. Um, I guess I'll start it off. I, you know, for if I go to a restaurant, I usually start with a Campari and soda, sort of to wake my palate up. Um, I'm a big fan of champagne, of spa, um, a sparkling wine. Um, and at the end of the day, though, my real treat is a Burgundy. Up, you know, I I drunk a lot of Burgundy in my oh, career, yeah. and uh, uh, at this point. My dream wine is, I, I'm a huge fan of Coach de Riz, a white producer in um, Merceau. So I like zippy acid and real fresh and um, that style of wine is what I really crave. Yeah. I would second that answer exactly. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I'm just going to say that when I'm not drinking Iron Horse, I'm drinking their wines. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> That's the only way to go. And I, I tend to drink... I tend to drink whatever I haven't been tasting that day for work. So, uh, you know, I start tasting most days at about 8.45 in the morning. Oh. And I don't, true story, even when I'm tasting spirits. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my daughters tell people that, you know, they used to tell people when they asked what I did for a living, that my dad sits in the basement all day drinking wine and whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a true story they told to their their. Uh, Right. <laughs> she, she, she wanted to have words with me. With yeah, me. for sure. <laughs> but the sad thing is I don't swallow a drop of it until it's time to start making dinner. I spit mortgage payments every day. It's very sad. <laughs> but for me, I, I tend to drink with dinner um, whatever I haven't been having. So like if I've tasted two or three dozen Sonoma Coast Pinots, then I'm not having that for dinner. I'm going to have, you know, white burgundy or maybe just... Uh, Bourbon, I don't know, just whatever the opposite of that is. Oh. I spent last week tasting a number of, um, I had a piece for foodandwine.com on my, my recommended whiskeys for old fashions, which entailed mixing dozens upon dozens of old fashions starting at 8.45 in the morning. And that week I drank so much really cold, cheap beer with dinner uh, because I was incapable of tasting anything else. Yeah. But when I do drink wine, it's, it's wine like, like, you know, you all make. I mean, wines, wine, to me, what makes wine so special is it's the most amazing lens through which to see a particular pl- patch of planet Earth. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's very few other beverages that can do that. I think, I think tequila can do that, <laughs> right? It takes, it takes agave a very long time. Yeah. Uh, to reach maturity, and that's very expressive of where it's from. But wine, wine to me is that that sort of ultimate expression of that sense of place, and those are the wines that I gravitate towards. I want to know that I'm tasting, you know, your wine from your part of the valley, and I want to know that I'm having, you know, your wines. And they, they taste like where they're from. Yeah. And to me, that's what's most exciting. Uh, isn't that what wine should be, an expression of where it's from, uh, of the terroir, uh, as, the, as the French would say? They say it much better than I said it. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, it's, and there's a sense of history in wine as, as well. You know, as you said, sense of place, uh, but that place also has a history, uh, which contributes some, many times to the style of wine that you make at that place. Isn't that correct? But I think ingredient X in wine is also the people behind the wine. Right. Mm. And that's why the stories are so important and so interesting and the personal philosophies. And and so, you know, it'll be interesting when you're tasting our wines out there if you can say, oh, 
That is Jamie all over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. So, you know, I just I just think that's another way of, of looking at it because I think that um, obviously when we're doing our trial blends, um, in theory, it's all excellent. And it's a very subjective decision that we're making for what we feel is the best right. of the vintage. Mm. A winemaker once told me that, you know, people talk about, you know, soil composition, underlying geology, aspect towards or away from the sun, yeah. uh, all these other things as, as going into the definition of terroir. But they did say that, you know, the winemaking culture of the place and the people who actually are bringing that wine to fruition, that's also a key part of the terroir. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Jamie, if you were, if you were making wine with... Avery's grapes or vice versa, it'd be totally different wines, yeah. right? Because you're both bringing yes. different philosophies. Have you ever done a tasting of same vineyard, different winemakers? Oh, yeah. Fascinating. It's fascinating because yeah. they're, the wines are different because the people ha- have an in- impact, just think, like a chef does. I think this human aspect is also a good kind of point to talk about with climate change and that's like kind of the social aspect that climate change is bringing into the picture of what the impact has on the business Mm -hmm. and how that kind of turns into the financials of the business, but also kind of the industry as a whole. It's very, very hard to get staff and vineyard workers work in terrible conditions. Like you said, like if it's too hot or if there's bad smoke, like they can't work and they're looking for work. And I think that part of the conversation often gets forgotten, but it really is part of the whole picture of like what practices can you change in the vineyard that make it easier for the vineyard workers. Like we're a single estate. It's only about a mile across. <laughs> and so our grapes don't travel far from vineyard to winery. And so yeah. this past year I switched everything from 35 pound lugs, which is a lot of work. It's a lot of movement by many men usually um, to going into macro bins. And so now we can use machinery to dump our fruit and have someone just mm-hmm. raking the fruit in and the bins don't need to be cleaned. So now we cut down of six to seven hours of just wa- nonstop water to the ground and then six to seven hours of labor as well in the heat in the middle of the day after these vineyard workers have been up all night too. So I think that when we're looking at climate change, like Every little thing that you can do is super important, but it really is about looking at the whole picture of kind of what your impact is on your industry, your team, and how that kind of translates and to your the final community. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that uh, um, climate change is, is forcing us to think on, a, on different scales. Yeah. And um, you, you, you can't just be looking at the grapes, you have to be looking at the community and uh, the extended family, everything. It's so uh, it's all part and parcel. Yeah, I winemakers are, are obviously attracted to what they do because they have a passion for what they do and, and they derive great joy from it. But they come from such diverse backgrounds, you know, and and it's a lot of hard work, as you just pointed out, a lot of hard work and worry. So sometimes I wonder what attracts someone from a life of comfort to a life of like like. Like Jamie, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you yep, can stay yeah. in the financial world and just, you know, kept drinking other people's great wine and not have to worry about when to harvest or. That's uh, right. Now I, have a, sal- I, have a, I have a big cellar and I could drink my own wine if I, <laughs> I think times get bad. 
Um, so specifically, what what do you what 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 are you trying to ask, or just going well, from that lifestyle? I, there's really no question oh, there. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, right. But actually, it's more directed at you than any of the others here, because you know you were in the financial world back in New York, and you know I I presume earning a a good salary uh, and didn't have to worry about, you know, growing seasons and harvests and wildfires and all that. But I'm telling so you, yeah, right. attracted you to this sure. profession. I'm, 100X, I'm, a, I'm a much happier. I, I say sometimes that my, my, um, my office or my lights above my head used to be halogen lights. And now today it's the sun. You know, I, I look up and I see the sky and, the, and hear birds. And <laughs> farming is probably the, 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 the part that really makes wine making more the most special any winemaker will tell you that in the yeah. world and it's been um fun to purchase grapes for almost 17 18 years but now to have your own estate and watch the children grow um and yeah. someday cultivate them and make them into wine is really super duper special and quite quite um it sort of feels good yeah uh another thing was working on a desk and pressing buttons you were making money for a bank they were very happy when you made a lot of money and they'd throw you a token with a bonus at the end of the year. But today, you know, you're making a tangible product just from grapes and, you know, trucking those grapes to the winery and thinking that someday that's going to be a special bottle of wine. And then on Thanksgiving, getting a text message with somebody that's drinking the bottle. I'm drinking this with my mom and dad. It's magnificent. Yeah. Nothing is like more rewarding of a feeling of that. Yeah. Um, but this whole conversation... Um, of we bring it back around to global, um, you know, climate change and global warming. I, I'm I'm so thrilled with all of this and the, where the conversation has gone. But it makes me feel like a, the most important thing for me that I'm leaving this with is I want to make change. Yeah. So I don't want to again, and I already said this earlier, is that I don't want to just go and adapt to what the heat is or the fires are. I want to make a change with try to. I'm intrigued by the water or anything like that to try to help. And while I only have 12 acres and it's quite small, you know, you need to, we need to get through to like Kendall Jackson, which I think is very forward, that company and that brand, but maybe even bigger than them, whoever that is, is to try to get them to make changes too, um, to try to reverse this, right? Is yeah. that more important even than... As you said earlier, you're playing offense. I right, like that. Right. Well, there's. I am uh, very fortunate to sit on the state food and agricultural board, mm -hmm. and um, um, I'm going to give you all some light reading. The uh, <laughs> the Department of Food and Agriculture has just put out uh, Ag Vision the next decade, and it's on their website. And it is such an interesting read because it talks. It basically is sets goals for the State Department of Agriculture, that they will have metrics to follow to see if they succeed at fulfilling. And it has to do with, of course, water use. It has to do with um, making the uh, environment for farm workers uh, better and better and better and, um, and filling the gaps of, of aid during flooding or during fire. So many things. And so it's really... Um, there are people who are working on this, and one of their programs is is a healthy soils program. Okay. Um, and there, there's talk about getting that more funding for that kind of work in the farm bill, which is very important on a national level. So I think in general, people are really moving. But this is a great document if you want to read it. I also think it's I, I think that something unique about growing <laughs> wine grapes is that it is so public facing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. It's in a way that, you know, I can go to the 
produce section of my local Whole Foods outside of Philadelphia, and I, I have to take their word for it that it's grown responsibly or, or not. But there's there's a level of parsing and obsession with detail when it comes to the growing of wine grapes that, you know, it, I, I moderated a discussion uh, in Napa in January uh, with the Napa Vintners, and, you know, that's one of the things, you know, you want to make change, right? And that's that's something unique because viticulture is something that I think consumers can understand uh, its impact, you know, that, that bigger sort of amorphous, amorphous impact of agriculture uh, on the environment and how it's being impacted by climate change. When it comes to wine grapes, that's, that's a language that we've all sort of always spoken about it, right? Yeah. How are the grapes grown? Where? What's the impact? So it's that, that forward-facing, public-facing aspect of it. Uh, I think there's a real sense of responsibility um, and, and optimism that's there. There's, here's a question that ties into what you were just talking about. What regions are winning uh, the, the challenge against uh, climate change and what, what regions are losing? I, I, I got to go back. Or, or can you call winners? Uh, or can, no, it, can you even call well, winners and losers? UK. Yeah, Southern England, Southeast England. That's one of those places where I write about it in the book. Yeah. Um, we talked about it earlier oh, today. Oh, yeah, right. For you sparkling know, wine. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you have the, the famous chalky soils of, of, you know, the best parts of Champagne. And you have those white cliffs of Dover and the streets of chalk in southeastern England. And you sort of realize that a quarter billion years ago or so, it was sort of all part of that Anglo-Paris basin and northern France and the Channel just got in the way. Uh, so the potential is there to make great wine. It was just always too cold, too wet. Uh, you know, and that temperature goes up on average one or two degrees Celsius. And all of a sudden, you can ripen your Chardonnay in ways that you never could before. You can ripen in some vintages. I was talking to one producer who actually bottled a still red Pinot Noir. Whoa. And he didn't make a ton of it. And, you know, he said to me, he's like, look, it's, it's not Romane Conti, but he said it was pretty good. Yeah. And pretty good red still Pinot Noir from wow. Southern England. That's kind of that crazy. It is. He did say, however, that it's not without a trade-off, right? Because the sort of, the, the misty rain that he was experiencing for his entire life is now becoming, and I'm told this all over the world, seeing this all over the world, it's a lot of more dramatic bursts of flooding rains, right. whether it's manifesting as the atmospheric rivers or something even there where it'll just be, they'll just get pummeled with inches and inches and inches of rain, whereas, you know, it would have taken a month or so to accumulate that before. And then there's issues with that in terms of erosion, uh, in terms of, you know, all kinds of other disease pressure, fungus mold. But in general, yeah, if somebody is sort of winning, if you can be winning at this, that's there's some really good sparkling wines coming out of England. Yes, and the King of England will be drinking English sparkling wine at his coronation, which it will be a first. Oh, yeah. He will not be drinking champagne. Yeah. So I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. It's a statement, right? It's yeah. a major statement. And the whole world will be watching. So oh, yeah. Powerful statement. Yeah. Very, yeah, it's just fascinating. And, and, if, and I think it's a statement about, yes, about climate change. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's more complex. It's so much more complicated. Right. Right. It's so easy to say the temperatures are going up everywhere and there's more bad stuff and that but it's there there's it's it's sort of a stew. 
right? And there's there's and it doesn't take much to to change. What is what is that the butterfly effect? Yes. Oh yeah, that's right. So it doesn't take much. So even you know within a, a confined area, you can find a pocket, you know, and and it's the foundation of our belief system that we are in one such pocket, mm-hmm. which sounds like you are feeling that way also. Yeah, so absolutely. We're, we're you know dedicated to it, making it work. Yeah. You know, the four of you are fascinating. I can sit here and talk to you all night, uh, but we can't keep you here that long. But I will remind you uh, that uh, Brian will be uh, seated here signing books and answering questions uh, after this conversation ends. So there's uh, one final question I want to ask direct to to Brian, and that is, uh, what most surprised you as you were doing your research for this book? I sort of tried to ask that question early, but I fumbled. So no. Uh, What surprised me most as I was researching for the book was, and it's not that I didn't expect the sense of of optimism, mm-hmm. but I didn't expect to find a similar strain of optimism in eight distinct places around the world. Um, you know, it, it's 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 not just affecting um, you know wine as well, right? Like I, I write about I write about whiskey, American whiskey, in one of the chapters, and and to me. Talk about turning lemonade or lemons into lemonade. What is right? Lemon. That's right. Lemons you don't want to turn lemonade into lemon. That's the. <laughs> uh, but there, uh, several years ago, and uh, you know, spirits producers are having issues as well, right? I mean, if you're most most, let's say, bourbons that we buy, right? It's it, they're based on commodity grains. Uh, so if there's some new virus or some new mold that hits some giant cereal grain farming operation in, in Saskatchewan or something, sure. right, that's a problem. Um, you know, I was talking to uh, one of the the, uh, uh, the head distillers with Sazerac, who's in charge of several of their gins. And he was telling me that um, while we were talking, actually, in the, in the winter of 2021, that an ill-timed monsoon wiped out... Uh, a lot of the vanilla and juniper and other crops that he needed for his gin. So he had to literally scour the planet to find them. But he found other sources. Yeah. But to me, one of the, one of the uh, uh, things that, that struck me is, as encapsulating the sense of optimism, right? Yeah. There's two things. One, uh, Buffalo Trace, right? They make some fabulous bourbons. Uh, and in 2006, I believe it was, a tornado hit one of their warehouses. Oof. I believe it was Warehouse C. Knocked it down. Why do I know it was Warehouse C? Because there was a barrel or two and somehow survived, but the building around it did not. And it sat out there in the elements as they were rebuilding. Right? It just sort of got forgotten. And then they tasted this barrel. And they said, oh my God. You know, the exposure to the sun and the heat right. and the cold. This is completely different. And then they sold it, and now it's like you could you could put a down payment on a very nice house <laughs> somewhere in San Francisco for like a couple of bottles of this. Thing. But this idea of taking you know the weather conditions of that year That's of right. that moment. The other thing, that sense of optimism, uh, and I'm going to call out Jamie here is is I spent an afternoon with you and and Kristen and Clayton. Uh, I think it was last year, year and a half ago, and you guys were. You guys were working, you know, preparing the land for the vineyard and and Clayton, you know, their adorable son. Uh, and you guys were out there and I'm, I'm watching you and I'm thinking, you know, 
everything that's going on with climate change and all of this sort of doom saying, but you have that faith that there's going to be a path forward. And I think all three of you are finding that path forward. And it was this, it was this almost cinematic thing, right? Like the, and I'm a writer, so I don't believe anything I say, but you know, <laughs> the sun was dappling through the trees in the distance and you, you were on your, you were on your, uh, Four-wheeler. Uh, yeah, yeah, your four-wheeler and helping, you know, throw some stumps in the back there as you were preparing the land. And I thought this is this is that idea of generational stewardship of the land. Yeah. Both of you have that, and now you have that. And if that's not if that's not a testament to to your all belief in the future, uh I, I don't know what is. That's awesome. You should run for office. That was a great that great. Great campaign speech. <laughs> By the way, not only will Brian be sticking around to answer questions and sign books, but we're going to be tasting the wines that these wonderful people make as well. So I want to thank Jamie Kutch and Joy Sterling and Avery Helan, I got it right, and Brian Friedman. And thank you all for joining us for this very uh, engaging, enlightening, and uplifting discussion. And really. thank you. Thank you for, <laughs> for being here. Well, I, I enjoyed it. I had more fun than anybody else. Thank you. That's our show. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.